Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. So I'm going to go ahead and kick this off. Today we have a guest speaker and... um, it's Harvey Asher, as you go, or Harvey A, as you all heard. He has uh, uh, over 34 years of sobriety. I've known Harvey since 2001, and uh, I wanted to invite him here to to talk to us today. And, and I know Harvey, and he typically doesn't stay on topic, so wherever he goes and God leads him, I'm okay with. Uh, but I had I had suggested a topic of... of the history of SA through Harvey's eyes, basically. So what he's seen over the last 34 years and where this came came from is I was in a meeting at Bellevue and in the reading, the solution, it says, all this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead except that others had gone that way before. And, uh, you know, that, that really Harvey started sharing about the others. Uh, and in my life, Harvey's been one of the others and, uh, I'm very grateful for him and his recovery and, and uh, his, his uh, sometimes sanity, sometimes crazy. It's, it's wonderful to, to be on this journey with him. And, and I want to just kind of open the floor and uh, let him share his experience, strength, and hope with us. So with that, Harvey, cheers. Okay. Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Hey, Harvey. Hey, Harvey. Uh, how this came about, too, was I was asked to um, – after people heard me share a bit at a meeting about essay in Nashville, they, I got calls and requests to just record or write the history. Well, that's not my style. <laughs> that's a lecture. And lecturing in a 12-step program, is it for me? I share my experience, strength, and hope. And I can't do that when I'm by myself with just a a microphone. So I said, well, to get a group, maybe we could do it with a group. And so that's where we are. By the way, I did want to show you before I start, this was the first essay book. It had a gray cover that it progressed up to the white cover. And um, we got these through individual, as you can see, they're just typewritten eight by 11 pages. And they were just, the founder of SA would just kind of mail single sheets to us over the, over a period of time. And we kept asking him, there was no essay book 
when I came into the program. And uh, we kept asking him to write one. And he was a real humble guy. And he did not want to write the book. And so we started putting all these sheets, loose sheets of paper that he would send periodically into a loose leaf book. And um, one day he just said, okay, and we'll get into that a bit later. And then this first edition was written in the 8 by 11 form. And then eventually it became the book like we have it, which has have some changes in it. Uh, one of the most significant changes was the de-emphasis on uh, losing your sobriety during your sleep. This first edition really is very strong about about wet dreams, losses of bride. Uh, But many of us who are getting sober were having wet dreams (laughs) periodically and knew we were sober. And and Jess, my sponsor, uh, would say, uh, well, wet dreams is... (laughs) Sign of recovery. None of us ever had wet dreams. We were too busy masturbating to ever have wet dreams and physiologically release it. And eventually, the new, the next type of addition um, softened it up. That whole whole concept. Um, I want to digress for a moment. Uh, you know, there is no reality. There really isn't. You'll be in this room and I'll be in this room. And we're seeing entirely different rooms. Matter of fact, I'm seeing it from that angle, where there's a TV, large TV screen. You're seeing it with steps. There is no reality. We have made reality merely through our thoughts. And so by the time we get, we're acting out, it's already been done in our mind time and again. You know, very much like a a real good basketball player. He has shot those shots, got it in the basket over and over again. And his brain, when he's on the court, is not doing anything different because the reality was already made in his brain by repeating over and over a certain set of thoughts and connecting it to an emotion. And that's what happened with us, with our fantasy life. Our fantasy life, the brain could not tell it wasn't real. So some of our inappropriate 
or I should say our, my inappropriate behavior, was it didn't seem inappropriate. I had done it so many times in my brain and attached it to a feeling that it was already real, and so it didn't seem inappropriate. So with this in mind, everything I tell you is only my perception of the history. It's not necessarily real. It's just how I saw it, how I experienced it. Uh, I also have to say that I gave our founder, Roy, a very tough time. You know, in doing inventories about it over the years, um, he became, to many of us, the transference figure. You know, all our angers towards authority, all our concerns, all our need for friendships, whatever it is, for power, he got it. He would get it from us. And I'm a type of guy who rebels against power, authority. And um, I gave that man a rough time. And after about 15, 20 years, uh, I decided to not only make an amend to him in words, uh, but in action. So I never say a negative thing about him. And I never think a negative thing about him. That's my living a man for a lot of the behavior I had towards him over the years. But first of all, by the way, this picture is my AA sponsor. And his wife, who is my wife's Alanine sponsor. And here is Bill W., the founder of AA, and Lois, the founder of Alanine. This is not so long ago, meaning generationally. We're really connected through the oral tradition of people who were around when Bill W. was around. Um, so let's get to Nashville first. Uh, this Nashville is uh, rather unique <laughs> that a small ta- city at the time ended up getting as many meetings and then eventually getting the SA headquarters. We never requested it. We never knew it was going to happen until one day it was announced because the headquarters was in Simi Valley. You often hear about Simi Valley, California, on the news when I used to watch the news. And, um, but that's where Roy was, uh, the founder of the fellowship. And um, the SA headquarters was in his garage in Simi Valley. So I'm telling you that because there is another Roy who founded it in Nashville, a different Roy. 
And <clears throat> that Roy um, went, heard about it, went out west to a little conference when it was just a mini little group of people and came back to Nashville and started announcing at AA meetings. He was starting SA. And um, one day I went up to him and talked to him about it. And he said, no sex with self and no sex outside your marriage. And craziest crap I had ever heard. And I just flipped it off. Just flipped it off. Um, And he kept announcing it at meetings and apparently found one other person that he was meeting with in his apartment house on Woodmont Boulevard. It's still there. It's uh, right before you get to 100 Oaks on the left, these red brick older uh, buildings. And um, uh, I'm a low-life low bottom drunk I've had sex with hundreds and hundreds of people I've masturbated at least seven eight thousand times by the time I was 44 <clears throat> had intercourse maybe seven eight thousand times by the time I was 44 must have had 75 prostitutes male female I am an equal opportunity sex addict. Doesn't matter who or what, I do it. And one day after an AA meeting, uh, I was sober about six months in AA at the time, I jogged downtown and ended up in a porno store and made it with some young guy. And he kissed me in the lips. And that wasn't my thing, to kiss men. wasn't my thing. And he kissed me in the lips, and I left the porno, and I said, I am hopeless. There is nothing I could do to stop this. I had also already given my wife venereal diseases a couple of times. Nothing. And I, at that moment, said, I can't fight this anymore. I'm going to divorce my wife. The hell with my religion the hell with my profession, and this is all I'm going to do. And I had a moment of peace like I had never experienced before. I couldn't live this double life one more moment. He's a father with four kids, a professional person in the community, 
And I just couldn't do it anymore. And I said, that's it. And with this kind of inner freedom, I jogged back to the AA clubhouse where my car was parked. It was 23rd Avenue North. And I jogged into this guy, Roy. Jeff. He was in the parking lot. It's like, just bumped into him. And out of my mouth came, I'm ready. I've been sober ever since that day. Uh, That was in um, March of uh, 1984. I was about 44. I'm 79 now. I've grown old in recovery. And so I said, I'm ready. And he gave me a brochure. We had no books. We had no material. We had that one brochure. We still have it with a questionnaire. And the problem and the solution. That's all we had. That's why I got sober on that pamphlet. Yeah. I think it might have the steps in it, but you know, I make this up as I go along, so you'll have to check that part out. Um, and he gave me the brochure, and it said, no sex with self. And I said to myself, that's ridiculous. It's a healthy thing. All men do do it. And then all of a sudden, I realized that was my true drug. Intercourse was merely having another way of having sex with self. Um, That was it. The light bulb went on. And I knew, because I watched it work in AA, that I could stop masturbating one day at a time. Just like with AA. And he said, um, come to a meeting. And it was in his apartment. And I can remember walking up the steps and saying, as I'm walking up, I can't go in there. I need to go to the porno. Somehow I walked in there, and there was the two of us. It was an hour and a half meeting. That was it. And um, he spoke for about an hour and 20 minutes. (laughs) 
And um, then he asked me to kind of do a first step that I brought in the next week. We had one meeting a week. Um, the Nashville is special. All of us that first year, and I kept the list, we had 100 people come and go. But basically, we were all from AA. So Nashville SA got started, basically, with the AA book, with people who understood a lot of the steps and traditions of AA. And it's a very different perception. The essay book, which in it says our basic text are the AA books, has become the basic text for most people. And you miss a whole lot when you miss the AA book, the first 164 pages, and the 12 and 12. You're relying on a commentary versus the original material. And so SA in Nashville started with that fundamental program. Now, if AA could work for us for sexual addiction, I wouldn't be in SA. It didn't work for my sexual addiction because it has a primary purpose of alcoholism. And other people in AA meetings could do what I was doing, let's say, if they, but they weren't addicts. They could stop and progress, whatever. That first year, there were two of us left out of about a hundred. Roy, who brought me in, uh, relapsed after about six months and um, did a criminal act. Uh, He's back from prison after 33 years. He's come back. But he was in prison for 33 years. And so I'm, I don't tell his story like I did this. He's here now to, to work his program. He's come back to work his program. And, um, but there were two of us. You know, I've watched thousands of people. I figure at least 3,000 people come and go. Most people don't stay. Most people continue the approach that I have not seen work. Once people come to say um, that they're bad getting good, not sick getting well. So they say I could do it through church or synagogue or a mosque. Nope, this is an addiction. It's like saying, I will get well from diabetes through a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. 
we're not bad getting good. We're sick getting well. But we kept getting people coming in through AA. And then more people started hearing about it. And then this phenomenal thing happened. Patrick Carnes had just published his book, uh, Out of the Shadows, and he started training therapists. And he trained a therapist, Ginger Manley. And Ginger got to meet a lot of sex addicts and would refer them to us. When I say refer them to us, what she would do is we were having the meetings now, because this, the guy was off to prison. They were in my office. And my secretary who would take all these calls. <laughs> you know, people who want to keep this secret, go for it. It doesn't work for me. My secretary knew my story. And she ran the show. And Ginger would call in or others, and they'd refer him to us. And very early on, we decided to have an answering machine. And then we decided to put the meeting times on the answering machine. There are communities in this country where you have to be screened to get into NSA. Have to be screened. I was just in a city few weeks ago, I had to call, leave my number, and eventually someone would call back. We did not have that mentality here. Again, I think it's because of our AA fundamentals, where we weren't building our recovery on shame, but we were building it on disease model. It's my hypothalamic area, my limbic system screwed up. It's that simple. That little chip in my brain that regulates eating and drinking and reproduction and fight or flight, anger and fear, I have a damage in that section of my brain. I do. I could get off on fear as much as I could get off on lust. I could get off on rage. I had a rage attack last week, first one in about 10 years. It's always waiting. Someone confronted me after a meeting Yesterday, this in the parking lot, I was saying, it's always waiting. And he's saying, you're sounding like it has a mind of its own. And I was a real good question. I gave him some, you know, crazy answers. But this morning, all of a sudden, it dawned on me something I knew, but I forgot to say. My disease shares my brain. 
It lives in my brain. See, we got it all wrong. It does not live in a penis or a vaginal area. It lives in the brain. The result of that results in other areas of our body. It lives in the brain. So it shares my brain, but it always lies. So it always wins. It's as smart. It has my exact IQ, but it lies. And so it always wins. So as soon as I go into my brain to listen to my brain, I'm already lost. That's why Bill W. in the big book talks about the intuitive self, the next right thing. The next right thing is not an intellectual issue. It's a spiritual And it's tough getting people to turn off the brain. And that's why, especially in a Judeo-Christian country that I'm proud to be part of and be a member of and a citizen of, yet we are so programmed that the 11th step in our mind we do not see the word meditation. All we see is prayer. That's all we've been programmed for. Prayer. But 50% of that step is meditation. Saw through prayer and meditation. We didn't say and. And yet try convincing do you really think prayer will change God's mind? That means God has a mind. My higher power doesn't have a mind. <laughs> if he had a mind, he'd have to have a penis and hands and legs and live somewhere that I could comprehend. Well, how can you comprehend a power greater than yourself? Once you comprehend it, you're in again. What does prayer do? It's a wonderful thing. Still do it. It makes me comfortable. And when you're comfortable, you have more of a chance of staying sober. It's also a mantra. You say the same prayer over and over. It's hard having another thought. So a lot of times prayer becomes a meditative practice. And they're interlocked. But here we have a program here in Nashville that we based on a disease model. Very tough in that say, you know, in the many, the beginning years, especially one conference in the meeting 
you know, agenda for an international conference. It's a big picture of Jesus holding a lamp. Very difficult for SA to shed some of the religious and get to the spiritual. You could be religious and have spirituality, and you could be religious and not have spirituality. And you could be spiritual without religion, you could be spiritual with religion. But they are not mutually inclusive. They're not. What are we saying here? We're talking about the first five paragraphs of chapter five in how it works in the AA book. All we get to see are the steps, a lot of times in the SA book. But in how it works, before the steps come, you have five paragraphs before the steps in the book. And what are those five paragraphs? It includes, we had to let go of our old ideas. doesn't say we had to let go of our old religion. It says our old ideas. It says half measures avail us nothing. It takes an hour an algebraic example or arithmetic and puts it down. No. Half gives you a half. Not in 12-step recovery. Half gives you zero. So before you could even do the steps, and it says there's one way that guarantees you're not going to make it. That's not if it's that you're not honest with yourself. And so we had a lot of this in Nashville. We also had a very fortunate thing. The second person who stayed sober was a woman. So Nashville was based on a man and a woman. It wasn't just a man's fellowship. We had many women. Uh, Eventually, that woman got so well. She was a professor. She finished a PhD, and she got so well. And um, she started writing books, and after seven years of recovery, moved to a a well-known university. And left Nashville. Uh, but as you know, we have Priscilla is probably has some of the most sobriety in the country. You know, uh, the two people with the most sobriety in the world in SA are two women. And then I have the third most. I have the most as a man. But there are two women who have more recovery. Everyone else has died, you know, died off. So 
So Nashville had this very fundamental base. But we started noticing that it wasn't working as well with the the women and the men. Uh, The women had a tendency of having a lot more of romantic fantasies going. And the parking lot became, at the portable, a real problem. Without anything rough happening, rough things were happening. And finally, the women started having their own meetings. And this great core of recovery started coming in, where the women were needing to get used to being with the women, still came to our meetings, but they started having their own meetings. And um, uh, that's how it stood. Our first meeting was uh, someone got us the church on Glendale, first church meeting. And it was every Thursday night, and no matter what, Listen, we were there. I'm not exaggerating in that. We were there every Thursday night. That's all we had. And after had a couple of years, this guy Judson shows up. And Judson said, I need more meetings. <clears throat> and on his own, he, he figured out where half, if the half moment between Thursday and Thursday, and we got a Wednesday meeting or something, sometime in the afternoon, we did it halfway. And he kept doing that. And before you knew it, we were having a meeting a day. And then something real good happened. Again, I think a very Nashvillean thing. We started having more day meetings so people could be home with their family at night. A lot of cities don't have that. Uh, I went to Atlanta some years ago. Um, One of my sons lives there and we were helping out with his new baby. And after a couple of weeks being there, you know, I said, this is such a large city. You don't have any morning meetings, many lunch meetings. And boy, they've been, they started. We have things in Nashville we take for granted that are unique. And we started, um, Nancy and I did the first international conference ourselves in Nashville for the first Nashville International And um, we started doing all kinds of new things at those conferences. And then we continued and somewhere along the way Roy realized apparently that we had quite a bit of sobriety in SA and he wanted to let go of the headquarters 
in his garage, they picked Nashville. Uh, again, we didn't request it. We had no idea until they said it. Uh, Dave H. from Franklin was very instrumental in helping. And you can't imagine how much service work Dave H. has done from Franklin. He was basically helping out with that central office in those first few years. We have a very unique thing in Nashville. We have at least, we have three people with over 30 years sobriety. Lee T. And Dave, me, lots of people with 25 years or more or a few. Um, in the meantime, uh, we're going to talk about national. Um, they, <coughs> Roy wrote the book. Um, you could read about Roy's view on essay history. This is papers on it. <coughs> but Basically, essay naturally took off because Roy was the mind behind it. But a man called Jess, in about 1983, Roy started it in 76, but it could not get off the ground. It just wasn't getting off the ground. And by 83, Jess came. And Jess, uh, Bessie's dead. We could use his name now. But Jess uh, was a famous author. He was one of the first people to publish uh, a little book with a million copies or more Uh he uh, wrote, I ain't much baby, but I'm all I got. And started all these series. And he was one of the founders, trustees of Emotions Anonymous. And he had this like school. And he went and lectured all over the country and the world, he and his wife. And where his wife heard about S.A. and told Jess he needed to get it to S.A. <laughs> and wherever they went to give lectures, Jess talked about S.A. And so Jess would start little groups wherever they were. So one of the main ones was in Oklahoma City uh, with Sylvia. She's still is here now. She has probably a year more than I have in sobriety. And um, Jess was a lot of the Apple, Johnny Appleseed for for everywhere. Uh, I went to my first conference and I met Jess and that's where he became my sponsor. Uh, at that point, I didn't know he was a famous author. 
<laughs> Luckily, <laughs> um, just asked him to ask him. Um, throughout all this, from the very beginning, was a gay issue. Uh, what do you do with gays? It destroyed more, that topic, more issues. It, it is a topic that Nashville, thank goodness, would never get into. And I think that's one of the reasons we grew and grew and grew. We would not get into the argument. We did our stuff, whatever. We believed in the sobriety definition. But the book, the original book, says no sex with self or sex outside of your part. Something where it was vague. And when it came time to change the book where it said heterosexual marriage um, every time that came up groups would disappear <laughs> because um, New York dropped away and then it had to start all over again and all kinds of tensions the, the fellowship almost split one time over it um, we took surveys, we took stuff, and it just got crazy. Uh, we here in Nashville, luckily, have never participated in the arguments. One way or the other, uh, because... For the most part, this is a homophobic fellowship. And most gay people who are in a marriage or a relationship, they don't really want to have to hang around us. We're homophobic. Even though I'd say at least 50% of our members have had sex at one time or the other with people in their same sex. But that's my view, my perception. Um, what was my concern? My concern wasn't what is the definition of marriage. My concern was what is the definition of masturbation. The gay issue has been so scapegoated, used to detour us from what is lust and what is sex with self. Don't forget, in this fellowship, you could be a voyeur and go to somebody's house and look in a window, watch someone undress, get aroused. 
and say you're sober. I didn't have masturbate to orgasm. A lot of people say they're sober, they masturbate, they just don't do it to orgasm. We don't touch that subject. But man, the energy done about the gay issue beyond anything. Very interesting. And we emphasized the lust and what is sex with self. And uh, other than being around for a while, uh, I was just this member. But one day, even though I was dyslexic, I, one of my sponsees was an English professor, and I asked him to check my writing, and I wrote an article on what is sex with self. And it shook things up. And that's when I started getting asked to speak and go around and many, many years ago. Um, these are the dangers of our fellowship. The danger is not being honest with yourself. But it always shows up. There's just so much you could walk the edge. (laughs) It eventually shows up if this really is an illness. Because if it's an illness, which I believe it is and based my whole sobriety on it, if you end up taking that photograph that we most of us get, including me, and let it turn into a motion picture, the phenomenon of craving begins. You've got to do it again and again, and then the progression comes in, and you're back out there. Just that simple. The fellowship morphed into the emphasis that's not that in our writing. It morphed into we are powerless over sexually acting out. It does not say that in step one. It says we are powerless over lust. And I believe that in general, that's been a problem for the fellowship. We keep talking about it. One of the problems is essay has a religious overtone to it. In the beginning here in Nashville, probably three quarters the people who came were either ministers, <laughs> priests, um, choir masters, organists, you name it. And naturally, it was that. Nationally, it was that too. And so the word lust 
became a religious type of word rather than a term that refers to the mental images. Um, the 18-wheeler helps with those with lust. If you think about it, what does an 18-wheeler how I overcame my obsession with lust. Why the hell they put that in at the end of the book? I'll never figure out. It should be the first part of the book. Hey, here are some tools. But what are those tools? They're to prevent the first thought that is how God made me. There is no way I could look at an orchid and not see a vagina or a penis. There's no way. Everything. My filter is I see it sexually. That's what my brain does. Anything you say, I hear it sexually. First thing. That's not the first drink. The first drink is what I do with that. So Jess would say, The first thought is on God. The second thought is on me. People are not, well, there's a fear. We were talking before the meeting about not looking at the news. You know, I detoxed for quite a while. Uh, What will my life be like without it? What will my, what, our brain goes, what will my life be like if I can't play that one? And Jess would tell the story that three friends, male friends, were walking down the street together. They had just had lunch, and they're walking down the street. This gorgeous woman is walking towards them. One of those three guys was a sex addict. The other two weren't. The two who weren't said, gee, is she gorgeous? Would I love to be with her? Gee, did you notice her this and that? One street later, Those two guys didn't know that woman existed. And for the next 10 years, the sex addict was replaying that scene. Okay? It's in here between our ears. And the 18-wheeler gives us directions for that. God, whatever it is I'm looking for in her breast, may I find in you. God, whatever it is I'm looking for in his crotch, may I find you. And if you haven't done it yet, I suggest you do it. Right. What am I looking for? What is it that you're looking for in the breast or the crotch? For me, it's press and male crotches. Either way. All this crying 
I hear, oh, you mean I have to avoid 50% of the population? I got to do that with 100% of the population. (laughs) So don't cry to me. (laughs) (laughs) What are we looking for? Well, when I did my list, I was looking for nurturing, companionship, acceptance, wholeness, joy, all kinds of things. Can I find it in my higher power? And if not, find ways you can. If you don't find something better or as good as an orgasm, you're in trouble in this program. This and nothing feels like an orgasm. Without that, there would be no world. No future generations. It was the greatest discovery. You think a caveman would be taking stones and killing tigers or mammoths? if he didn't know he wasn't going to get some at the end of the day (laughs) when he went back to the cave but for whatever it is for a sex addict our natural instincts go haywire not because we're bad but we're just not made like other people just so one day at a time I haven't even touched the history but we tried (laughs) we tried and um, that's the first part of the history (laughs) thanks for inviting me appreciate it we're very glad to have you thank you thank you